And then there were four. UConn's dominance, FAU's magic carpet ride, Miami's resiliency, and San Diego State's luck has this tournament unlike anything we've ever seen. Will the madness continue heading into the Final Four? The Mavericks are slipping out west as frustration builds not only with losing, but Luka Doncic is dealing with other matters bigger than basketball. The Phillies lose their first baseman and another Yankee starting pitcher goes on the IL. What? I'll also discuss MLB over-under win totals as the season is now just three days away. Plus all that's happening in the NHL and NFL. The final week of March, the first quarter of 2023 already is almost in the books as I deliver top-notch sports talk with plenty of fireworks, balloons, and confetti. It's all coming up, but first, this message. Jay Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, the Jay Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening to my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. The last Monday of the month sets us up for a big week as a new baseball season will commence, a final four will tip off on Saturday, and another lap around the track for yours truly as I'll do a deep dive on all that's transpired over the past few days in the sports galaxy and beyond as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. And what can we discuss? So what has taken place over the last 48, 72, even 96 hours that we can wrap our arms around and really get into full bore as far as what the sports world had to offer? Ah, yes, that would be the tournament. And everybody from coast to coast, north, south, thought that this was going to be a tournament that was highly unpredictable We did not know what to expect. It was certainly one that a lot of people thought maybe you'd have a couple of Cinderella's here at the Final Four or at least making a deep run because all you've heard over the last few days is the parody of college basketball. And I don't know if it's pretty much parody as it is just schools, universities that have raised their game 
in crunch time, certain situations, to the point where this has been, and you know me, people, I am not a guy that's a prisoner of the moment. Everybody's always looking to that classic game or that classic series or all-time great tournament as we've seen so far. But I have to say, what we've seen here, not only just over this past weekend, but going back to the previous weekend where we had all those games in the first, I'll go back and say, six days, going back to two weeks ago tomorrow, because you had Fairley Dickinson with that unbelievable upset over Purdue and them playing pretty well in the next game against FAU. And obviously they're going to be a focal point here. But I have to say that this tournament, this year, unlike any other year that I've seen, has been not only entertaining, thrilling, upsets of plenty, some controversy, which obviously we'll get to, schools that have been swimming and diving into the deep end of the pool for the very first time, and they're still not even gasping for air, not even treading water. They are trying to swim all the way to Houston as this has been a tournament that nobody ever forecasted, that nobody has ever even experienced or witnessed. When you look at three schools that have never made it to the Final Four that are the last team standing to go along with UConn, and we know what UConn has done in the tournament, especially at the turn of the century, even going back to 99 when they beat Duke, and all the wins that Jim Calhoun, the former coach going back to that era, had won, and even Kevin Ali, as UConn has made it to a Final Four for the first time since 2014 when they won the title that year. You had all of the number one seeds knocked out before the Elite Eight for the first time in tournament history. And when you combine all that, and even with these teams that are seeded fourth, fifth, ninth, and throw in another fifth seed, This is unlike anything that we've ever seen. And this has been by far. And let's see what's going to happen next week. And we'll talk about that a little bit today. But I'll really go in on it come Thursday's podcast. But this has to be, if not the best tournament, it's up there. Now, they have to seal the deal. There has to be two good games. And it doesn't have to be a classic championship game by any stretch. But we cannot go to these heights the way it's just picked up from every game and every day throughout the course of this tournament. And it's at its pinnacle right now. So you would only hope that the air is not going to be let out of the balloon come Saturday night in Houston when the Final Four will take place to either two lackluster or underwhelming games and to have a so-so championship game. No, it has to take us even higher than what it's already taken us. Because if it's going to be classified as an all-time tournament year and one that we'll never forget, there's still three games remaining. But before we even get to that, up until this point, there isn't any other superlative that I could say for what we've been able to watch here, and especially as indicated over the weekend. And there's so much to go around I guess I could take one team and put it aside because UConn by far has been the dominant team throughout this tournament. As evidenced what we saw versus Arkansas and then just the undressing of Gonzaga there on Saturday night. 
And what more can you say about Coach Danny Hurley and what that team has done to this point? They pretty much have not even breaking a sweat through their first four games of the tournament. And you know that they're going to face some adversity here because this isn't going to be a cakewalk to a title. Now we know, based on the other three schools and the reputation, you could put FAU, San Diego State, and Miami all in one hat. And they don't even come close to what UConn has done here over the last 25 years. Can't. And you wonder whether or not UConn is going to face a lot of pressure knowing that they're going up against lesser schools, not lesser competition, because they deserve to be here. They have certainly forged their way through this tournament and have shown that they're battle-tested. But now as they get to the biggest stage, we wonder whether or not those teams are going to stand and deliver at that time. But again, that's not for discussion today. That is for later on in the week and as we get into the Final Four on Saturday. But with the way UConn has performed here, by far, I don't even know what the odds are, they have to be the odds-on favorite to win this thing. But as we've seen throughout the years, and no matter how great that this team has played, you know there's going to come a moment where they may be trailing, or they may have a big enough lead, and here comes the little engine that could, in this case will be Miami, as they'll face off there in the second game Saturday night, You just wonder if Miami is going to be able to turn on the Jets the way they did in the second half of yesterday's game against Texas and how UConn is going to respond to that. One more time, teams who make championship runs or get to a championship, there's always one game that it's going to be a nail-biter, it's going to be a white-knuckler, it's never going to be easy. Are we going to see it Saturday? And if they do win that game, are we going to see it Monday in a championship setting? That's the biggest question for UConn right now. And I know I got myself a little bit ahead because that was something I was going to say for the back part of this segment here when I'm talking about these teams. But for UConn, it's as simple as that. There's no need to dissect the game against the Razorbacks or even Gonzaga for that matter. Now we know Gonzaga, they were in the game until Drew Timmy got his fourth foul there in the early part of the second half. And then from that point on, that's when the Huskies took over. And the Bulldogs did not have an answer. And there was a part of me that thought back to the game a couple of years ago when they beat UCLA. And of course, they beat UCLA to get to the regional final against UConn. And we saw that it was nip and tuck. Gonzaga had to come from behind against UCLA in that game. And they ended up prevailing, similar to what they did in the semifinal, Final Four game a couple of years ago. And what happened? They fell flat on their face against Baylor. And to a certain extent, they did the same thing here against UConn. And I know UCLA's got to be sick to their stomach knowing that Gonzaga in the second half of that game let it get away. And UCLA was that close to not only getting to a regional final, but being maybe even just as competitive, if not more, than Gonzaga to get themselves to a situation where they would have made it to Houston. But obviously, that is not the case. So with the Huskies, a lot of the attention is going to be on them and a lot of the pressure. And I'll go by their opponent and then I'll get to the other bracket because Miami and what they've been able to do, and mind you, I picked them to go to a Final Four. The last team standing from my brackets because I had also Gonzaga going to the Final Four and as we saw, UConn thwarted that opportunity. 
And then in the other bracket, forget it. That was blown to smithereens, so there's no need to get into that. But for Miami and what they've been able to do here, and yesterday was just a pinnacle. Now, you have to give credit to the Hurricanes and what they did. You had Jordan Miller, who was perfect from the field, 7 for 7 and 13 for 13 for the free throw line. They were down 64-51 with about less than, I think it was, what, 13 and a half minutes to go. And I thought to myself, if they don't have a run in them at some point soon, there's no way. Texas is finally going to get back to a Final Four. They're going to have an opportunity to play for a national championship in their home state. Of course, with the games being at NRG Stadium in Houston. But boy, did the ghosts of Texas Longhorns pass, for whatever the reason, started to creep up and just imploded as Miami came storming back. They actually took a lead there late at 77-75 after being down by 13. And then from that point on, it was just a matter of who was going to make stops, who was going to make a big shot. And Miami was able to stand and face adversity and look right in the eyes of Texas to say, we're not going anywhere. Because remember, this team last year in this same spot lost to Kansas in a regional final. And that stuck with a lot of the players on the team because they knew that they had to go back into the well. Now, were they thinking about that trailing 13 with 13 and a half minutes to go? Probably not, but I'm sure as they started to gain momentum, as they started to slowly but surely chip at that lead by Texas and then were able to get past them, and then once they got the game to 79 up, after a couple of free throws there, I believe it was made, excuse me, by the Hurricanes, at that point on, that's when they took over the game and they ran away with it late in the game, I might add, 88-81, the Hurricanes were able to cut down the Nets. And I understand you could say Texas gagged and they choked. And yes, they did have a double-digit lead in the second half of a regional final. You have to give credit to Miami and what they did. And Coach Jim Laranega, as we know, he's been down this road before. Maybe not so much the Cinderella as he was in 2006 with George Mason. But he is very familiar with this territory. And he was able to get his team out of the fire And even with a little bit of a, not a scuffle, but there was a disagreement there with one of his players on the sideline. And it looked like maybe Miami was just going to wither away and succumb to the pressure. But it must have galvanized them because they were able to turn it around and not only prevail, but be that team that said, we have arrived. We bounced back. We took last year and all of that pain and suffering from losing that game to Kansas and the eventual national champion at that time to propel us to get to this point to where now we're going to be one of the teams representing here in the Final Four. Just a stupendous job. Uh, What more can you say about Miami and even in the previous game and what the Hurricanes did in that region when they went up against Houston and dropping down the number one seed. Nigel Pack having a huge game, 7 for 10 from 3, 26 points, the most points scored by the Hurricanes in tournament history as they scored 89. And... They have just been resilient. They have just been having that, I'll say it, testicular fortitude, as I like to say. And it's headlined by their coach, who one more time, this is an uncharted territory for Jim Laranega. And the Hurricanes, think about this. In the other bracket, they have a team that is, what, about 50 miles up the coast? in Florida Atlantic, and they were here at Madison Square Garden over the weekend to where in the first game, and I guess I'll have to go back and talk about it because 
when we look at their game on Thursday night versus Tennessee, we know Tennessee plays a very physical, suffocating type of game defensively. They don't have a lot of offensive firepower. And the Volunteers, they were in control pretty much throughout the whole game. But then when you get to the second half, it just doomed them as FAU played fast. They also attacked. They did not let Tennessee control by any means the tempo of the game. They were led by John L. Davis, their guard, and FAU, a team that was on nobody's radar, granted that they were in the top 25 this year. But the team that plays in Boca, and I know because my dear friend John Irving even went to school there for, I believe, a semester or two. Right there, Boca Raton, and even though this is a team that a lot of people can't really pick out of a lineup, or if you even ask where Florida Atlantic is, they probably wouldn't even tell you or wouldn't even know at gunpoint, and I know it's a little bit severe, but you get my gist. And then for what they did against K-State, and K-State played very well against Michigan State. The game went into overtime. We know about Marquise Knoll and his tournament record for assists to go along with his 20 points in that game as they outlasted the Spartans, and that was just a classic game. But then the game on Saturday night where, again, Knoll was brilliant, 30 points, 12 assists. The guy is diminutive, but he plays with tremendous heart. And then Naquan Tomlin, both of these guys actually from New York City, had a big game, 26-10, and 10, but that was not enough as the Owls were just as gutty, gritty, shocked the world to become the first nine seed to play in the Final Four since 2013. You got to go back 10 years in Wichita State. At 63-57, when FAU trailed Kansas State, they went on a 15-1 run and then... Toward the end of the game, as Kansas State was making their comeback, Michael Forrest made four very clutch free throws in that final minute, showed their resourcefulness, showed their, like I mentioned, just being gutty and even being clutch for that matter because those free throws were critical in order for the Owls to prevail here. Give credit to Vladimir Golden, their center, who was superb in the game. And FAU, who would have thought, A team that was in the top 25, as I mentioned. I get it. Nobody paid attention to them because you look at Florida Atlantic and you think to yourself, what is this team doing here? Why are they ranked so high? What have they done this year? Who are their top players? But guess what? Here they are showing the world and shocking the world that they are here and that they belong and that they deserve to be in this Final Four. And then there's San Diego State. It's interesting because when you look at these three teams, San Diego State, FAU, to me they're mirror images of one another and even Miami to a certain extent, although they are a little bit more seasoned than the aforementioned two schools, but they all pretty much have the same DNA that they do not have big time scoring. There isn't an All-American or a guy that you'd have to really channel and focus in on to try to stop or slow down. And they are truly teams in the definition of what it takes to have all their players contribute, perform, execute, etc. Now with San Diego State, they were able to beat Alabama and that was another situation where Alabama, they were in control throughout. They led by nine midway through the second half and at that point, that's when the Aztecs turned it on. And again, the Aztecs are a type of team similar to Tennessee where they play physical, they go nine deep, They want to do their best to try to force you into turnovers and suffocate you, and they do not have big-time scoring. Yes, they do have a couple of players there 
Darion Trammell, one guy in particular, as we've seen here throughout the course of the weekend, is a guy that we certainly have to look out for and certainly focus in on. Lamont Butler also as well, can't forget him. But when we look at the way they played against Alabama, how they just took over the game, they stopped, literally contained Brandon Miller, the All-American that shot 3 for 19, only had 9 points in the game, 6 turnovers, was not a factor, especially in the second half of that game. And we're going to wait to see what's going to happen with all the proceedings afterwards based on what happened there in January. But again, that's another story for another day. But for the Aztecs to not only smack down the number one seed in Alabama, but then to go up against Creighton, who beat Princeton there in the second game, and give it up for Princeton. The clock struck 12. They played very well. They hung tough. And even with them doing so, trying to make it a game, not trying to let the game get away from them, Creighton was just the better team. They were too much for the Tigers as the 15-seeded Princeton Tigers who did just phenomenal throughout the course of those first two games to get into the Sweet 16. And what more can you say about what they've done? And at least they went out fighting and didn't go out as a team that was just happy to be there. And then once the lights went on, they just wilted. And then you have the game yesterday. Creighton, San Diego State coming down to the wire. And the first thing I thought about in those final seconds, and that's what's going to be remembered about this game. To me, it reminded me of the Super Bowl between the Eagles and Chiefs. That call with 1.2 seconds left on Darion Trammell, was it a foul? It's borderline. I will say that. Because you did see Tramiel's momentum at the very end. You could see he was influenced by the hold or at least the hand in the back by Ryan Nemhard. But again, swallow the whistle. The game as it was, they let them play all afternoon. There were not a lot of fouls called. In fact, San Diego State had what? Six free throw attempts in the game? And with the game tied at 56 and knowing that it's coming down to its final seconds... I understand it can't be no blood, no foul. But if it's not egregious, if it's not overtly obvious that a foul was made there, you can't call that. As it was, Trammell missed the first of two free throws and then you were hoping that he would miss the second one only because you wanted to see overtime. You didn't want to come down to an opportunity where, as you saw, Creighton had to throw a desperation Hail Mary to see if one of their teammates would come down with the ball and attempt a shot. And that's how the game ended. It was so anticlimactic that even with that one free throw, you needed a wing and a prayer in order for Creighton to have an opportunity to get a decent look, let alone a clean look. And unfortunately, with that call, it got San Diego State into the Final Four. Now, it's not to say they were undeserving. It's not to say that they didn't belong. I know Creighton, great job by the coach Greg McDermott in the post-game interview, how he said that, He didn't point the fingers at the refs. He did not go there by saying that his team didn't do enough during those final seconds and that San Diego State did. And I understand that's a call that I'm sure the coach, the players, and the entire university, they're going to be thinking about this all spring, knowing that they had an opportunity to at least have a tie game. And who knows what would have happened in that overtime to where Creighton would have made it to a Final Four instead of San Diego State. But unfortunately... That's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. 
That's just one of those things where you wish they could have taken that call back. And again, Neymar did have his arm or his hand at the hip. And there was a push there. It was slight though. It wasn't obvious. It wasn't egregious as I said. And unless it's something where you absolutely positively have to call, then call it. And understand, it wasn't a bad call. You just don't want the game to end, presumably, on a call like that where Creighton pretty much has a zillion to one shot to even make that inbounds pass and to get a shot off there. And that was your weekend in a giant nutshell. And I know I didn't talk about Xavier, Texas, because to me, didn't really matter. And as it was, the Longhorns by far played their best game as I'm just trying to take the weekend on a whole and thinking that I pretty much covered it, but I didn't give Texas their due by beating Xavier the way they did. But now here we are with these last four teams standing and with everything that we've talked about here with this tournament to date being just unbelievably wild, crazy, unpredictable. And yes, one more time. You know me, people. I'm not one to all of a sudden throw labels on, oh, this is the best ever, classic tournament, classic game, this, that, because everybody's looking to do that. But we've witnessed it and we've seen it right in front of our very eyes. This tournament to this very moment has been otherworldly, spectacular, throwing any superlative you want. It has been more than what we could have ever imagined. And think about this. You have a very unsexy Final Four when you add it all up. Because if I would have told you at the beginning of this tournament that these four teams were going to be the last one standing, you'd be like, oh my God, I'm going to go to sleep. I'm not going to watch these games. They're going to be a bore. But you have seen the way these teams performed, even trailing double-digit deficits to come back and win these games and show that they do belong. Where last year... Your final four was Villanova, Kansas, North Carolina, Duke. You couldn't be more opposite from last year to this one. And I get it. It's not really sexy. And that's the danger of this final four. And I'll talk more about this on Thursday's podcast. But just to give you a little inkling, this is what's dangerous. Because could the clock strike 12 on any of these teams? Could Miami, let's say, run out of gas here? And UConn just continue to steamroll their way through this tournament? Or when we look at FAU and San Diego State, are we looking at a 51-48 slugfest that, yes, is going to be competitive, but is going to be the ugliest basketball we've ever seen? That's just something to keep in mind as we talk about it more on Thursday. But I'm sure if TBS, right now, they would hope and pray, I would think, for a UConn-FAU final. I don't think they want to have San Diego State They would love to see a nine seed in FAU be there. And I understand that you're not going to have the ratings from last year. You have four of the top programs in the country. How could you not? And we saw the North Carolina Duke game going down to the wire. And of course, the national championship game was very competitive down to the final minute as well. We can't expect that this time around. But with the way this tournament has gone, you just never know. But think about this. One last thing before I move on. It has reached its apex. Could it get any better than it's already been? That's the one thing I'd worry about going into this weekend. And that's going to be one of the themes, of course, come Thursday when we reconnect at that time. 
But that's it, people. What more can you say about what we've been able to watch and just unbelievable basketball? This is one that they're going to remember forever and we can just only hope that the Final Four and the National Championship game will be an encore to what we've seen here over these past two weekends. Now as I turn my attention to the association and it's going to be all downhill from here, people, because I don't know how I'm going to raise the level of what everything I just discussed in the first 25, 26 minutes to now even getting to bigger heights than what we've just discussed. So let's get to it from the ecstasy to the agony. The Dallas Mavericks are in a free fall. And the reason why I bring them up is because they had a home and home and a rare one at that when it comes to East West home and home. Usually you'll have divisional matchups or divisional rivals. If you want to call it that, if there's any such thing in the NBA in this day and age, but for the Charlotte Hornets, And the Dallas Mavericks, Charlotte went to Dallas on Friday and then they went to Charlotte yesterday. But the game Friday night was puzzling because if you're a betting man, and I'm not, the Mavericks were a 16.5 point favorite over the Hornets. And we all know the Hornets have been a dead team walking for months now. But for the Mavericks to put up the ultimate stinker in their building... And not only lose that game, but they also lose yesterday, I might add, 110-104. So with everything that's happened there, Kyrie going to Dallas there early in the month of February, their record is a team. Get this, people. You think that the backcourt, and mind you that Luka has been out of the lineup. He's actually played in the last three games. I know the game against the Warriors there, what was it, Thursday night? Well, maybe it was Wednesday. It was Wednesday night where he got fined. Lucas first came back from the left eye that he's been nursing over the last few weeks, where he made a money gesture toward the refs because of the call that was made in that Dallas-Golden State game. It was actually Wednesday now, because we talked about it on the podcast Thursday, where the inbounds pass went to the Golden State Warriors, where they had the easy dunk. And then toward the end of the game, that's where Luca flashed the money sign by rubbing his index finger and his thumb, $35,000. And he's not not only that, on top of that, to add insult to injury, he's going to get suspended for a game because he got his 16th tech, I believe, yesterday. So this is all becoming a cauldron of not only emotions, but the snowball is going downhill at a rapid pace to the point where the Mavericks, as of right this second, are on the outside of the Western Conference playoff picture looking in. Not only did they blow that 16-point lead there on Friday night, and what you want to say is the biggest upset of the regular season, which we obviously don't look at that throughout the course of 82 games, but it is what it is, understandably so. But in the postgame, how Jason Kidd came out and just ripped his team, saying that the effort was awful, even calling it dog shit, call it as I see it, My apologies, excuse my French. Also mentioned that the team deserved to get booed toward the end of the game as their interest level wasn't even high. And then when Luca addressed the media and how he brought out his frustration, not only for a bunch of reasons on the court and not just basketball, but that he's dealing with some off-the-court issues. Now, I don't know if there's a relationship issue. That's something that I really don't care about. Hopefully, everything is okay. Nothing that's... He can't handle or it's a little bit overbearing at the moment. But when we combine that 
And then even with Kyrie, and I have to throw this in the mix, people, I'm sorry. I know we've seen this script a thousand times. But for Kyrie, when he was asked about the fans and about the booing, all Kyrie had to say was, well, if you want to change places, be my guest. We're professionals. We're great at what we do. If you want to boo, fine, but you can never be us, is what he's saying. Now, we know Kyrie has not only one foot, but one arm out the door, as I'm sure his destination this coming offseason is going to be La La Land in L.A., but as this team has performed, 3-8 and eight under the Kyrie-Luka tandem in the lineup when healthy, and now 7-13 and 13 since the trade, and even though they are on the outside looking in, but by the slimmest of margins, just a game behind Oklahoma City for the 10th seed, this looks like this team is imploding as we speak. And it looks like there's not going to be a life raft thrown out to them by Luka, Mark Cuban, or anybody in that organization to save this team because this would be just a free fall that we haven't seen in quite some time. About 10 days ago or so, this team was 5th and 6th in the conference. And we understand, and we've talked about this, there's been a logjam between the 5th seed and going down to even the 12th seed because you have the Jazz, who are a half game behind the Mavericks, but just a game and a half behind Oklahoma City for that final 10th seed in the Western Conference. So it's not as if they've fallen completely flat on their face, but you have to wonder whether or not this team's going to be able to pull themselves up lace up the bootstraps and get themselves in gear to make a final push to get themselves at least into the playing tournament to save some face and to at least show some pride on whether or not this team is just going to mail it in and show that maybe Kyrie and his entrance a month and a half ago has been a disturbance to some degree. And I don't want to put it all on Kyrie. It's unfair. I get it. But the team was playing well. The team was doing fine. And now they have underachieved big time. And I'm sure Mark Cuban is chomping at the bit, probably wanting to chew out his team. And I'm sure that he is just in angst, knowing that this team, at this very moment, would not make the playoffs if the season ended today. So that's the first line of business when I talk about the NBA. As far as LeBron James, he's back in the lineup. He came after a 13-game absence with that foot, going up against the Chicago Bulls. And what happened? He came off the bench, in fact, I believe he scored 18 points, had a decent stat line, but they lost to the Bulls and even got clowned by Patrick Beverly. Remember we talked about this months ago when Beverly went back to the, maybe not months, but weeks ago when Beverly went back to his hometown of Chicago to play for the Bulls and how he said that he was going to try to knock his team out of the playoffs. And Beverly did have a shot late where he had a little jump hook over LeBron and then he did the gesture where he had his hand inches from the ground as if he was playing small. Now, mind you, the game was, I think, at that time, 113 to 105. So, all right, he added a little insult to injury or icing on the tombstone for the Lakers as far as them not winning the game. But that's Beverly. We all know that that's his MO. But as far as LeBron and company, as they are just tied with the Oklahoma City Thunder for that ninth spot, 13 and a half, Games behind, or I should say, that's the leader in the conference, but for the Lakers, for them to be at the bottom rung of that playing scenario, they're in danger of not making the postseason. And even with LeBron back, let's see if he's going to be able to keep them afloat so that they could at least be part of the playing tournament or maybe even get to Golden State, who are are a game and a half behind or a game and a half ahead, I should say, 
of the Lakers with that sixth seed out West. As far as the Brooklyn Nets, remember them? Well, they're still in the hunt as far as them trying to be one of the top six seeds there in the Eastern Conference, and they had a huge win in Miami on Saturday, winning 129-100, and they are in a flat-footed tie with the Heat at 40-35 and with, what now, seven games to go? So the Nets are trying to thwart off a late rush by the Heat because, again, if Brooklyn does fall one slot below, they will be in a scenario where they have to host a game in their building in that whole playing tournament and if they win that, they'll have the seven seed, but they want to avoid that altogether. And considering they have not played well here down the stretch, they are literally hanging on to that six seed, trying to avoid the seven seed or any of those play-in tournament seeding slots. But for Brooklyn, and remember, they're not going to have Ben Simmons, it looks like. He has not played in quite some time. And for Simmons, the last remaining piece to that whole Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and when it once was James Harden to now Ben Simmons with that trade with Philadelphia last year and him not being pretty much a part of the team here for this final stretch of games. Does it come as a surprise? Absolutely not. He has this back impingement, which looks like he may be on the shelf for the rest of the year. And it would be interesting if he was in the lineup only because, not to say that this would be quote-unquote his team, But he would be able to make it his team if he had maybe just an inkling of confidence and of course health, which is very important. But Simmons could actually be a guy that could, I don't want to say lead this team because nobody's going to look at leadership and Ben Simmons in the same sentence. But this is a scenario where he could actually thrive in. This would be a scenario that he would also look at and maybe take it by the reins to say, maybe I could increase my stock, and not only that, some trust into the organization, the fan base, etc. But as we know, Simmons going back a couple of years of what happened in Philadelphia at the end of that tenure, and then even after the trade, he didn't even play a minute because of injury in that latter part of last year. And then this year, he's been in and out of the lineup, up and down, numbers low across the board, far from the all-star that he was a few years ago. And even though everything that I said is all conjecture and it's all speculation on whether or not if he was healthy and it is moot, but will we see Simmons again? Chances are it's unknown and I would have to say no. But if he is healthy and clear to play, he should look at this opportunity of him not only for the trust in his locker room, front office, fan base, etc. This would be a huge boon for him if he were to be healthy and look at the situation for him to take on and say, let me see what I could do to lead this team as far and as deep as I possibly can come playoff time. I understand that is a ginormous if on both fronts, him being healthy and him being up for the challenge to take this Brooklyn Nets team who I picked at the beginning of the year to win an NBA final. Now, of course, who knew that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving were going to be traded midseason? But for Simmons, if he wanted to save any face, more so for himself and for the people in the locker room and beyond, this would be a great opportunity for him. But again, he has to be 100% healthy in order for him to want to and try to achieve that. So that's what we got there in the NBA. Other than that, everything has pretty much been the same. Whether it's Denver, Memphis has played well and they still have that two-game edge over the Kings out west. In the East, Milwaukee still has the top spot, two games and a loss ahead of the Celtics. 
And the Sixers, who have lost a couple in a row, they have fallen back. So I talked about Sixers-Celtics, which would be huge come May into June, only because if you're the Celtics, and everybody knows I'm a Celtic fan, you'd want to get that two seed. You still shoot for the one. And remember, Thursday night, Celtics at Bucks, so that's going to be a huge game to see where they stand as far as top seed overall in the East. But for the Celtics, it's imperative for them to get that two seed because the last thing they want to do is to spit up that second slot in the conference to Philadelphia to where they would have to fight out a seven-game series against Philadelphia with them having the home court and then have to go on the road again for a seven-game series against the Bucs. And I understand you can look back to last year with the Heat, and I talked about this on Thursday's podcast, so one more time. Yes, they did have a seven-game brawl with the Bucs last year where they had home court and they had to win a game six in Milwaukee, which they did, and then had another seven-game brawl with the Heat, albeit on the road, winning three games in Miami, but to do that two years in a row where they have to not only beat the Sixers, but then also beat the Bucs back-to-back series, That could be tricky, so you want to have at least home court for the one, maybe for the second one, if they're fortunate enough to beat Milwaukee on their home floor later this week. So we'll continue to keep our eyes on that. As for the NHL, the races are heating up in both the East and the West. The Bruins, seven in a row, we know they're running away with everything, but I only bring them up because they're inching closer to those win records. They currently have 57 wins. The record is 62 by the Red Wings back in the, what was that, 95-96, somewhere around there, where they had 62 wins on the docket. So they're six wins away from that with nine games to go. And they currently have 119 points. The total, 132 points is the record. And let's see if they can eclipse that. But we all know, even if they do both of those achievements, it doesn't guarantee them a cup ring or even an appearance to the cup final, as we've said, ad infinitum. But with the other divisions and the wildcard race, they're as follows. The Hurricanes and Rangers, they split two games last week. And the Hurricanes are just a point ahead of the Devils in the Metropolitan Division, currently at 103 points. Actually, they have three points ahead. My apologies there. 103 to the Devils, 100. So they're going to try to stave them off with 10 games to go. So that's going to be a race to the finish. We know out in the West... Minnesota, Colorado, and Dallas, they're all separated by one point. Dallas was in first place pretty much for the last month or so, but even though they're a point behind Minnesota and with Colorado also at 92 points where Minnesota's at 93, we know that's going to be a fight to the very end. Where in the Pacific, Vegas, they've actually played very well as well as the Kings have to the tune of a two-point differential there, Vegas at 98, LA at 96, Edmonton falls back at 91, which they look like they may end up being the three seed, although Seattle has the top spot in the wild card with 88 points, followed by Winnipeg at 85, and even though Calgary and Nashville, 81 and 80 respectively in the wild card, but they're going to have to pretty much run the table from here on out if they want to make it into the postseason and have Seattle or Winnipeg stub their toe along the way. And then in the East... The Maple Leafs have given themselves some distance as Tampa has hit the skids here, losing four in a row. They have a seven-point advantage there in the Atlantic Division. We're going to see a rematch between Toronto and Tampa, as we saw last year in the opening round. And then the Rangers, who currently at 96, they're in good stead. And chances are they may play the Devils if the season ended today. 
It's either going to be Devils or Hurricanes in that first round, but chances are it may be New Jersey. But the Islanders currently at 83 points, one point ahead of the Penguins in the wildcard race, where the Panthers, who they've lost three in a row, but they're still three points behind the Penguins and four behind the Islanders for that last spot. The Sabres, Capitals, six points behind the Penguins and Ottawa, seven points, which they may be at a reach right now because they are nine games left in the regular season where the Capitals have eight games left. So the Islanders who have lost two in a row and have not played well and we've seen worse things. We've seen collapses in not only just the NHL but in all sports. Let's see if they hang on here to the bitter end as they try to not be the two wild card or the second wild card seed in the East because what that means is a date with the Bruins in the first round which they do not want to, I'm sure to a man in that locker room, do not want to face. But that's what we have there with the NHL. Other than that, it's going to be a fight to the finish. Let's see how it all unfolds between now and the end of the regular season. We have some breaking news here over the last hour as I take off the skates and put on the helmeted shoulder pads as a one Lamar Jackson, quarterback of the Baltimore Ravens, has requested a trade because, and this is paraphrasing here, I did not read the whole story here over the past half hour, hour or so. But he has said that the reason why he's requesting a trade is because the team has not met his value, whether that's the $133 million that was reported guaranteed or even the $175 million guaranteed due to injury or basing that on injury or $200 million if he was healthy. Whatever the reports were back then certainly has a match to what Lamar Jackson has been looking for. And as we all know, This story, he does not have any representation. It seems like it's he and his mom who are trying to negotiate a deal. And now it's come to the point where he's requesting a trade. And I said this a couple of weeks ago, and I'll say it one last time in as tidy as I possibly can say it. The Ravens have screwed up here. They've talked all along, and I understand they're going to toe the company line when it comes to, oh, we want Lamar back. We love him as a player. He means so much to the franchise. But as we all know, They haven't put their money where their mouths are. Now, if all those reports are true, Lamar was able to confirm on his Twitter account that he did receive a contract with $133 million guaranteed, which he bought that. And you know what? He has a right to do that. There are players that are getting more money guaranteed, i.e. Deshaun Watson, $230 million. But I understand that's a crazy set of circumstances considering the ownership of the Browns, Jimmy Haslam. So that, you have to put, put aside at the moment. As far as... Other quarterbacks that have gotten, whether it's $150 million guaranteed if you're Aaron Rodgers, I believe Russell Wilson got somewhere in the 160s, same for Kyler Murray. So Jackson is looking for his worth somewhere along the lines of 160 to 200. And if the Ravens came in at 133, then shame on the Ravens. Because that's what's the going rate here in the NFL when it comes to not only quarterback and what they're paid, but also their guaranteed money and their value. And If Jackson is going to, say, send me packing elsewhere, he has every right. So I blame this more on the ownership and the front office of the Ravens than Lamar Jackson. But now here's the problem. He only has a couple of destinations that he could go to, and it's not as if he could pick which team or which city that he wants to live in over the course of the next five or six years. Because throughout the NFL landscape, all of your quarterbacks are pretty much in tow, except for the Jets, 
the Commanders, and maybe, just maybe, Bill Belichick in New England. Other than that, we could go through the whole list. You're not going to Miami because they have Tua with that fifth year that they picked up, $23 million. He's not going there. Obviously, he's not going to Buffalo. We talked about the Jets, New England. All right, fine. Pittsburgh has their quarterback. Obviously, Cincinnati's good. Lamar in Baltimore looking for the exits. And Cleveland has Deshaun Watson. Trevor Lawrence in Jacksonville. Houston is going to have a top pick, so there's no way they're going to trade for Jackson. Indianapolis, they're picking fourth in the draft, so they have a quarterback in waiting. And then you have Tennessee, who has Ryan Tannehill on the books, and then Malik Willis, who, as we've seen, has not been any semblance of an NFL quarterback. But chances are, Tennessee's probably not going to call Baltimore and see what they could get. Obviously, they're going to have to give up two number one picks, but also give them an upwards of $180, $200 million to boot. And then NFC West, he's not going to the Chargers, he's not going to the Chiefs. Las Vegas just signed Jimmy Garoppolo, and Russell Wilson's in Denver. The Giants just signed Daniel Jones. Dak Prescott is in Dallas. The Eagles have Jalen Hurts. We already mentioned Washington. Green Bay's not going to trade for them, and obviously they have to deal with the situation with Aaron Rodgers, so you can forget about that. Chicago has Justin Fields. Minnesota has Kirk Cousins. And Detroit has Jared Goff. The South, Atlanta, they're going to draft a quarterback. The Carolina Panthers traded up to get the number one pick. They're going to draft a quarterback. New Orleans just signed Derek Carr a few weeks back. And then Tampa signed Baker Mayfield. And chances are, I'd be shocked if they're going to make a transaction to bring Lamar Jackson down to the panhandle. And then out west, Stafford's in L.A., You have San Francisco, a bunch of quarterbacks there. Who knows who's going to start? Seattle just signed Geno Smith. And Arizona, although he's on the mend, but has Kyler Murray. So other than two or three destinations, where's Lamar Jackson going? Are the Jets going to trade two number ones for Lamar Jackson? I don't think so. They built this team the right way, and I don't think they're going to upset the apple cart. They're still focused in on Aaron Rodgers. They're playing the waiting game. They're trying to maneuver whatever... Draft capital, and without breaking the bank, so to speak, they understand they have to pay Rodgers, but breaking the bank as far as two number one picks are concerned in order for them to get their quarterback. So they're going to stick with Rodgers. The Commanders, yes. If they want to really make a splash and change the culture of that franchise, they will go ahead and do that. But do they want to trade with their rivals from down the beltway? I don't know if they want to do that. And all the pressure that's going to be on Jackson to perform there in Washington for what he did in Baltimore to translate that to him in the command uniform. Big question mark. And then New England. You know Belichick's not giving up two number ones, especially as he's trying to rebuild. And I get it. They have Mac Jones there in the fold. But Mac Jones, Lamar Jackson, I understand it's a no-brainer. You'd rather have Lamar Jackson over Jones. But is Belichick going to not only give up the keys, the house, the car, etc. But then on top of that, have to pay $200 million where when Tom Brady was there throughout the course or the majority of his career, this guy was making way below what the average top quarterback is making in the sport only for them to win Super Bowls. So you think he's going to pay Jackson in upwards of $40, $45 million with all that money guaranteed? I don't think so. So let's see. Jackson has put it out there. The Ravens pretty much are going to have only two or three teams on speed dial. And all I could say is, good luck. 
As far as anything else going on, there were a couple of other signings. I know DJ Chark to go along with Adam Thielen in Carolina as they try to build their offense down there once they get their quarterback around this time next month. And then the Ravens, they do sign Nelson Aguilar. If that was supposed to be a little bit of a carrot for Lamar Jackson to come back, I don't think so. No offense to Mr. Aguilar, who's bounced around here after his days in Philadelphia. Terrell Edmonds signs a one-year deal with the Eagles as the Steeler secondary has been depleted now, even though they brought in Patrick Peterson, but with Cam Sutton gone and obviously now Edmonds. Although they did bring in Alandon Roberts to patrol the middle, the former Patriot and Miami Dolphin, which now gives the Steelers a little veteran presence in that secondary as well as that defense to go along with Patrick Peterson, the aforementioned, as well as TJ Watt, Cameron Hayward, Minka Fitzpatrick. Very solid on paper. So I'm sure the Steelers, for them, this is wheeling and dealing because they really don't dip their toe into free agency the way they have. Granted, they're getting players... I'll say on the back nine of their career, but they're doing what they can to try to piecemeal this together to see if they can make a run next year with the young quarterback. And I know Tomlin has said a lot of glowing things about Kenny Pickett here so far this offseason as he prepares himself for year two. And then Lane Johnson gets a one-year extension through 2026 as he wants to retire in Eagle and he will do so based on them tacking on one more year and I believe somewhere in the vicinity of $30 million. So that's what we have there. And then to wrap up, the baseball season begins three days from today. I am pumped up. I'm excited. I'm raring to go. I know if you're a Yankee fan, you have to be wondering about your medical staff a little bit because for another starting pitcher to go down, we already saw Frankie Montas with his shoulder. You're not going to see him until probably the All-Star break. Even early in camp, Nestor Cortez had that hamstring issue. Did not perform in the baseball classic and his season to start in the Yankee rotation was in doubt, which I think is in the clear as he will probably start one of these first couple of games against the Giants this coming weekend at Yankee Stadium. But then you had a scenario where your high-priced free agent, Carlos Rodon, with his left forearm tightness where he may be back, maybe, as early as mid-April. And that could be just wishful thinking. And on top of that, you have Luis Severino, who's in the last year of a contract, albeit four years, 40 million, very team friendly. But we know that he has been out of the lineup more than in, has a right lat strain, and he's not going to start the season with the big club as he's going to be also on the IL, missing at least one start. And if the Yankee season... Other than Garrett Cole, now you have to pencil in Clark Schmidt as that number two. We know Jamison Tyon is now in Chicago. And Cortez, he's going to be part of the mix. But if this Yankee rotation is going to be on the IL and a mash unit, as Montas, you're not going to see him until the middle of summer. Who knows with Rodon and Severino, we know the back of his medical chart as a guy that you can't rely on being healthy. This could be a tough start for a Bomber team that obviously has big expectations, World Series aspirations, and this is probably as bad of a start as you could possibly have because your lineup is going to be healthy. And if there is some good news, you have Anthony Volpe, the prize shortstop, who's going to be a part of the big ball club once the season begins here on Thursday. So that's some great news. And he's had a killer spring to boot. 
But the rotation, we all know it's about pitching, and we get it. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. But it looks like the Yankees could be off to a sluggish start, to say the least, with three-fifths of their starting rotation out of the lineup. And speaking of out, you have Reese Hoskins, the first baseman for the Phillies, who tore his ACL, which looked like a routine ground ball against the Tigers the other day, and he's going to be out the entire year rehabbing that ACL. It's a big blow only because he's a guy that's been with the organization for a long time. He's one of the elder statesmen of the team, but you're not going to miss his defense. And yes, he has a very good stick, but I think Dave Dombrowski will probably work the waiver wire and the phone lines to see what he could get before the start of the season because their lineup is just stout. As we know, with Trey Turner at the top, we understand Bryce Harper's not going to be back for a while, but when Harper's healthy, he's going to be a tough out. Nick Castellanos, who's going to try to bounce back from a terrible year last year. JT Real Muto, the lineup is stacked. Kyle Schwarber, I didn't even mention him. So they're going to be fine offensively, even without Reese Hoskins, and especially defensively. So I don't look at that as a huge blow. If you're a Philly fan, yes, you don't want to see one of your homegrown guys that have been there pretty much for the last five, six, seven years to be out in the shelf. But for the Philly fan who's probably wondering or worrying about him being out of the lineup for the entire season, I wouldn't sweat it. Yes, he could be a cheerleader. Yes, he could be a guy that will still be a part of the locker room. But please, I think that by him being out of the lineup, it's not going to be that big of a void compared to some of the other guys that they have in their lineup, which obviously will be bigger voids once they're out. And that's including Harper, who's not going to be back maybe sooner than later. But rehabbing that torn UCL that he suffered from last year, it's going to take some time for him to get back into the lineup. And then quickly, we have the over-under numbers, which I'll really get into on Thursday as I'll pick three overs, three unders, as I usually do this time of year and pretty much what I've done for all the sports. Real quick, let me get right through it. The top team in the sport as far as over on the win totals for Vegas has the Houston Astros at 97.5. And and they're going to get off to a rough start, I think, as well. I'll get into that more on Thursday because they have players out of the lineup and things of that nature. So they have the number one spot. Atlanta, 96.5. The Dodgers, also 96.5. Those are your top three right off the bat. The Yankees, 94.5. The Mets, also at 94.5. Those are the heavyweights of the sport when it comes to teams that are going to be in the 90s or at least in that stratosphere. And then afterwards, it does drop off. Well, I do have to include San Diego there at 93.5 as well. So those are your teams in the 90s, which were expected. Other teams that are near the top or near 90, Tampa Bay, 89.5. I picked them as an under last year and they just made it as an under. I think I'm going to go that route again this year. That's a little bit of a tip here to start us off as to a team that I may pick as an under for starters. Toronto is actually at 90.5. I overlooked them. My apologies there. So we have to look at the Blue Jays who made a lot of moves this offseason and trying to keep themselves up with the Joneses in the AL East. You also have Seattle, another team that made it to the postseason and got out of the wild card round and beat Toronto for that matter, 86 and a half. The Guardians are 86 and a half. The tops in the AL Central, followed by Minnesota, 84 and a half. The White Sox, 83 and a half. The defending NL champs, 89 and a half are the Phillies. St. Louis, 88 and a half, followed by Milwaukee, 86 and a half. 
Then you have a significant and precipitous drop-off from there. San Francisco, 81.5. You also have the LA Angels, 81.5. The Red Sox, 79. Or excuse me, 78.5. 79 will have to be their number to clear. And you have a lot of those teams that are in the middle. In the 70s, quite a few teams in the 60s, which would include the Tigers and Royals at 68.5. You have the Nationals, 59.5, which are at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to over under win totals. Colorado, 65.5. Arizona, 74.5. Pittsburgh, 65.5. I think I mentioned the Cubs, 76.5. Miami, 75.5. Also, Oakland is hovering there with the Nationals at the bottom, 59.5 as well. I actually picked Oakland as under last year, and how did that turn out? I know that was low-hanging fruit. But that is a smattering. Baltimore, 76.5. I may pick them as an over. I may. I understand competitive division, but remember, they're not playing 19 games against the Yankees, Blue Jays, Red Sox, and the Rays. So keep that in mind as we get into the season, which there's a lot to uncover, a lot to dive into. My baseball preview will come to you on Thursday with all of these storylines as we raise the curtain on another baseball season as the umpires will scream, play ball, starting Thursday afternoon, March 30th, until late September into October. I cannot wait for that. That'll do it, my good people. Another episode just about in the books. As always, I'm super appreciative, grateful, thankful for you listening to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. It is never, ever taken for granted that you pass on by to listen and get your fix on what the entire sports landscape has to offer. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review. As I mentioned at the top, throw me a few stars, write a review. I greatly appreciate it. If you want to hit me up on any of my socials, you could do so on YouTube, at J Reels, on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, on Twitter, J Reels 1, just a number. And if you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, or suggestions, you could do so at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, A-T is in Tom, R-E-O-N is in Nancy, dot com, slash the J Reels Podcast. Whatever you want to put forth, we'll go 100% to this production, the upkeep of the website, the equipment, anything and everything to make this experience into this microphone, through your earbuds or speakers, that much more enjoyable, pleasurable, entertaining, informative, because whether you do or do not know, This is what I love to talk about, people. Sports has been in the blood, in the DNA since day one that I've graced this planet. And pretty soon, I'll be turning the calendar on another age later this week, which I'll touch on Thursday. Because where else are you going to find all these sports in one hour, in one podcast? With not only passion, fire, fury, energy, but thoughts, Feelings, opinions, analysis, critiques, praises on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.